Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. If we were to meet, one of the first things you would notice about me is the tattoo I have on my right arm. A collage of eastern block houses and smokestacks and trees, with a little chicken foot sticking out of a house at the bottom. That's a little ode to Baba Yaga, the crinkled old witch of Slavic folklore who lurks inside a timber hut atop a pair of chicken legs. She hops through the woods, doing good or doing evil or just doing her own thing, depending on whom you ask. She's one of my favorite figures from folklore, and so I was extremely pleased to see a far larger ode to Baba Yaga across my desk, Jenna Rose Nethercott's debut novel, Thistlefoot which reimagines the folklore of Baba Yaga in a contemporary American setting. In the book, estranged siblings Bellatine and Isaac Yaga are brought together, somewhat unwillingly, by a surprising and mysterious inheritance, a sentient house on chicken legs named Thistlefoot, who once belonged to their twice-great-grandmother and with whom they embark on a cross-country puppet tour. But a shadowy figure from a century ago is stalking them, bringing the horrors of the Yaga's ancestral shtetl with him. Jenna Rose Nethercott is a writer and folklorist whose first book, The Lumberjack's Dove, was selected by Louise Glick as a winner of the National Poetry Series. And we actually published one of her early short stories, A Diviner's Absidarian, in the winter 2020 issue of The American Scholar. Jenna Rose Nethercott joins us to talk about the folk tales and history that inspired her novel, Thistlefoot. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Jenna Rose. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. So, Baba Yaga, there are so many different versions of this story or stories. Which was the first one that you heard? Oh, man. You know, I I don't remember the first time. It's sort of like I always knew of her in a way, which I think is the nature of folklore, right? Is they're sort of it woven into the tapestries of our cultures and our memories, and we almost have a hard time parsing them from our own memories. Uh, one of my favorite versions, I actually remember an image more than I remember in language or in story, which is the Ivan Bilibin illustrations of the Vasilisa the Bold story, which may be the most well-known of the Baba Yaga tales. And I've always loved Ivan Bilibin's sort of block color outline this like incredible whimsical folk tale art that he drew for many of the Russian folk tales so that always stuck with me yeah he's great I'm actually using Bilibin's illustrations for the episode art but uh, for those of us who might only know of Baba Yaga vaguely or in whispers can you tell us an archetypical Baba Yaga tale so the archetypical Baba Yaga is I mean she exists in multiplicity but she is always this crone figure, this old crone who lives in the forest. Imagine sort of the, the thick Russian forests, deep in snow in the winter. They're like overflowing with verdant flora in the summers. And through the trees, you can see this creaking old house lofted up on a pair of chicken legs and it never sits still in some versions of the story it stands on one chicken leg and hops around in other versions it's on on a pair and living within this house is this crone this old woman named Baba Yaga who has some magical abilities and properties and she's feisty and she's angry and she's dangerous 
She was often used, I think, as a sort of cautionary tale that parents would tell their children, a sort of early version of stranger danger, where if you're walking through the woods and you come across a mysterious house and this woman invites you in, like, maybe think twice. Uh, the Vasilisa the Brave or Vasilisa the Bold story is a sort of almost Cinderella-like tale about a young woman who has these cruel sisters or stepsisters, and she ends up being sent on these tasks, these missions by her terrible stepsisters and terrible stepmother, and she ends up in the forest and comes upon Baba Yaga's house, and Baba Yaga agrees to help her or to not eat her um, if she performs a certain series of tasks. So in this way, she fulfills this dark fairy tale role that we see so often in so many different stories. Baba Yaga also is known to fly through the forest in a mortar and pestle, or she she is in the, the mortar and she's using the pestle as a rudder as she flies through the air. Uh, in some versions of the story, there are three Baba Yagas, Baba's Yaga, if you will, um, that are sisters and they all communicate. She also is known to have these three helpers, these three friends, which are these mysterious horsemen, the day horsemen, the dawn horsemen, and the night horsemen, who will come and bear gifts for her and do favors for her. And so, yeah, she really is this kind of witch archetype. I hesitate to call her a witch because she isn't, she isn't a witch. She's a crone. She's like a mysterious figure. She's sort of her own thing. And what's so fascinating about her, and I think why she's such a popular character in folklore and in sort of today's pop culture making this resurgence, is that duality that she contains. Um, like any good monster, right? Where she's like both enticing and frightening. And she can be kind and she can be cruel. She can give you like a magical candle that will lead you through the woods and solve all your problems. Or like maybe she'll eat you and then put your skull on a pike in front of her house. Um, and it's that tension of, like, you never really know what you're going to get with her that is so fun and exciting. I was charmed that this ambiguity, these multiplicities of tellings crop up in your novel, too. And the narrator of these stories, which appear throughout the book, is Thistlefoot itself, Baba Yaga's house. And I just want to read a section of one of these stories because I think it really says a lot about the way you use folklore in the book. So this comes in the middle of a tale that Thistlefoot is telling about the things that hatch inside three eggs that Baba Yaga brings to market. And Thistlefoot says, I'll admit, I considered telling this story differently. In another telling, perhaps Baba Yaga joins the resistance, and I lay egg after egg, fat with lead. It would not have been impossible. But in this telling, Baba Yaga does not join the whispering bullets. She does not tuck into back rooms where masks and pamphlets flutter like severed wings upon tabletops, nor does she tuck into a stonecutter's bed. Instead, she takes care of her own, as she has always done. Why did you want to include so many versions or possibilities for the same story in your book, too? I have sort of two answers for that, and one of them is uh, impressive and one of them is not, and I will give you them both. <laughs> um, the I think the deeper answer and the more impressive sounding answer is that, you know, it's the nature of folklore does include this multiplicity, includes this ability to shapeshift, and so much of what this novel is about is sort of the power of 
a story's malleability and the danger of that malleability if it falls into the wrong hands. Essentially, who has the power to control a story and how can a story change and thus a history change based on what version of a story is told? Um, and I also think that there is this element for Baba Yaga, especially in this moment where, right, we're dealing with a moment where she's either deciding or deciding against to aid in a kind of resistance act against uh, a genocide, essentially. And this is a moment, I think, that in story and in memory we hash over over and over again, where we always have these choices of, like, do we decide to be an aid or do we decide to step back and let something happen? Um, and we all have this same multiplicity in the same way that a folktale has this multiplicity. So it's it's functioning in both of those ways. Um, and also aiding with that like unreliable narrator that Thistlefoot is, where you're never quite sure if this character is telling you what actually happened or telling you an invention um, or just straight up lying to you. Uh, so that's sort of the heady answer. Um, <laughs> the less impressive answer, which... I, I often tend towards options in stories, multiplicity in stories, almost to like choose your own adventure-esque format. And for me, part of it is just as a writer, like I don't want to have to choose between them. I'm like, you know what? I could see multiple ways where this story could go. And like, who am I to know which one's best? So why don't I just put them all in there? I mean, I don't think I've encountered Baba Yaga in connection to the pogroms in Eastern Europe before. Um that's the genocide you referenced with Baba Yaga's decision there. And the town that your Baba Yaga is from, Gedenkrovka, is based on the village that your mother's family is actually from. Could you talk about that connection and that history? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right in that Baba Yaga is not usually linked to the history of pogroms. And in fact, Baba Yaga is not traditionally a Jewish figure at all. In the book, I have taken what is sort of a traditional Eastern European, Russian, Slavic folk character, and made her a Jewish woman in a Jewish shtetl in what is now Ukraine in the year 1919. So kind of following in that same pattern of folktales being able to wriggle and rearrange with each new teller and each new location, I think of this book as a continuation of sort of that natural folk process, where this is just one more version of the Baba Yaga uh, character and story. And it was really interesting for me to specifically delve into this history because I wasn't particularly knowledgeable about it before I started working on the book. I knew that I wanted to use the metaphor of this story, of this folktale, in order to explore issues of sort of xenophobia and fascism and the dangers that come when a, an oppressive regime has the control of a narrative or the control of a memory. And what for me, one of the most exciting things about folklore is that people tell folk tales when they can't look at a thing directly. When something is too frightening or too painful to discuss outright, they will invent a fantastical story that parallels that thing so that they can finally talk about it and process it. And so I wanted to use that same methodology in order to tell this story. So as Isaac and Bellatine are learning about their familial history, which they eventually learn is connected to this pogrom that took place in this town, Gerenkrovka, I was paralleling that process. I was doing that same research and that same digging. 
and speaking to my Zeta, my mother's father, about what he remembers hearing uh, stories from his wife, whose family this is based in. Um, she's passed away at this point, so the stories are now coming through him. And it's that process of uh, hearing stories that have been so many voices and so many memories removed and trying to tease out what is the folktale and what is the history. And does it matter which is which? If the emotional truth is still there, does it matter what the facts are versus what the feeling is? And I discovered this incredible resource which was a website that a man in Ukraine had put together where he he's a younger Jewish man who travels all through Ukraine visiting former shtetls and then researching their history and posting their history online. And I ended up finding a write-up on this website of a pogrom that took place in the exact shtetl where my family fled. So my own ancestors, my great-grandmother... Her name was Golda. I'm actually named after her. The reason my name starts with a G is because her name, Golda, started with a G. She, as a young woman, was about 16 years old, and pogroms were rising in the area, which for those unfamiliar, pogroms were systematic massacres of the Jewish people perpetrated by the Russian government, the White Army and the Cossacks, as well as sort of enforced through spread propaganda to the Christian peasants who would then kind of come in after the soldiers and like burn down buildings and murder people. And it's the reason why much of the Ashkenazi Jewish population immigrated to the United States was to escape these events. And it's why my family left. So my great-great-grandmother, Golda, she was 16. She had just been married and her parents and her fiancés, or her husband's parents, put the two of them on a ship to America, said goodbye to them, and never saw them again, and knew they would never see them again. And they came to this country not speaking the language, not knowing anyone, and knowing they would never see their family. Their parents stayed behind, and in my research, I have found that they would have been there during this pogrom that took place, in which many of the residents were killed, and within the next year, 80% of the residents who were relocated later died of famine. So it was this incredibly intense process of unearthing this traumatic history. One of the main themes in Thistlefoot is Isaac and Bellatine don't know these stories. They don't know this history. They didn't grow up culturally embedded in this history. Their family sort of made their own traditions. And so they think that they're not impacted by it. Or they wouldn't assume they were. Why would they? They don't know about it. Um, and as time goes on, you start to see how much of them are informed by these traumas that they didn't even know ever happened. How much gets passed down in the blood or passed down in the behaviors of the people who raise us that we don't even know why those behaviors are in place. Um, and for me, it was interesting because I never really thought of myself as a sufferer of ancestral trauma. Like, I don't, I didn't know these stories. I don't think about it. And I still, like, I'm still not sure how much of me is informed by these histories and how much of me is not, uh, which I think is kind of the great question of all of it is, like, how much of us belongs to us and how much of us belongs to the stories and the memories that have been passed down or even not, not passed down. Has the process of digging through that history changed your relationship with your family or with your, you know, your Jewish identity? It has. It's definitely made me more 
interested in it and invested in it. So my, my mother was raised Jewish. My father was raised Catholic, Irish Catholic. So we're, as I describe Isaac and Bellatine as being like true blue American mutts. Um, so, you know, we, I've got a bunch going on and, um, yeah, I, I think it has affected my relationship with my mother. When she read the book, she like called me immediately after and was sobbing and was basically at the end of the acknowledgement section in the book. I, I acknowledge, uh, the people of Rotmistrivka, which is the shtetl that, that Gudenkrovka is inspired by. And she said, as soon as she read those words, about like the and thank you to the people of Rotmistrivka, may their memory be a blessing. She just started sobbing because it's her history too. And it's like she it, it's interesting talking to my brother and my mother about this book because they were reading a book that's literally about their own ancestral trauma. So I think it's made all of us awaken to that story and that history in a way that we weren't before. And therefore has like changed that connection between us. And it's just a new story. It's a new part of the tapestry. What about um, some of the other Jewish folktales that in, inform the, the novel? I don't want to spoil too much, but I did notice that there was a little hint of the golem in there. Mm -hmm. um, are there any other Jewish folktales that sort of snuck their way in? Yeah, definitely. So the golem, I have my own spin of the golem that appears. So there was a folktale that I found in this book called A Treasury of Jewish Folklore. It's edited by, I'm holding the book right here to check the edit, um, A Treasury of Jewish Folklore edited by Nathan Ausabel. And I found this incredibly creepy folktale in there in, like, the demons section of the folklore. Of course, that's the section I page right to. I'm like, no, 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 I'll skip I'll skip the jokes and the fools, and I'm going to go right to the good stuff. And uh, there was this folktale about, well, I'll just tell you the tale, because it's a fun one. So there is a woman, and she wakes up and notices that the town is empty. She's wandering through and there's no one in the town. And she's like, oh my God, like maybe is it a high holiday? And I forgot, like, is everyone in the shul? And I forgot, like, crap, I've, I've got to go. I, I got to go. <laughs> so she's like starting to wander through the town and is wondering where everyone is. And she sees a man standing in the town and she goes up to him and she says, you know, where is everybody? Can you tell me where everyone is? And so he says, yes, let us, let us go to the shul. And he he walks her toward the the synagogue. And then he reaches out his arm to open the door for her. And then he just keeps reaching and keeps reaching and keeps reaching as his arm just stretches onward and onward and onward and onward until it opens the door. Um, and I think in this folktale, there's a moment where he's like gesturing upwards uh, towards God or whatever, and just lifts his arm upwards and upwards and upwards and upwards and upwards. And she realizes she isn't speaking to a man at all, but to a demon. And this image of this just like eternally stretching arm with this guy just being like, oh yeah, hey, how's it going? Everything's cool. Hold on. Let me just grab that for you. Was very upsetting to me and I loved it. So I, yeah, I adapted that folktale there's also, in many of the chapters that Thistlefoot tells, there's little nods to different pieces of Jewish folklore and Russian folklore. Um, there's 
a section where it talks about the ziz, which is a bird in Jewish folklore that's so huge that its feet touch the bottom of the ocean and its head like scrapes the heavens and it lays eggs that are so huge that when they crack open, they drown 60 satyrs or something like that. Um, so yeah, I tried to weave them in as much as I could and also made up my own as much as I could. And my goal was to have them be kind of indistinguishable from each other. So you never know. I want to talk more about the personality of Thistlefoot itself, because it's both totally original and quite familiar. Um, I felt like I knew Thistlefoot. And at the same time, I was constantly being surprised with every sort of new story that she would tell or it would tell. I feminized Thistlefoot in my head. Um, but here's a telling line, which I thought was very funny. Um, the, the eggs, of course, are mine. They are large, like ostrich eggs, with shells spotted and glossy as Baker Reb Barish Yonai's bald head. How do I lay my eggs? You are crass for asking, and I would be betraying my modesty to answer. All I will say is Baba Yaga knows to keep my bedroom cupboard door closed between the hours of daybreak and noon. How did you find the voice of Thistlefoot? Thistlefoot's voice was the easiest part to write of this whole book. I was always relieved when I got to a Thistlefoot chapter. It was like breathing, where Thistlefoot speaks like a folktale teller. And that is how I always wrote poetry, is, is as like a teller of tales. Um, I sort of built Thistlefoot's voice uh, around, or it was in a way an homage to writers like Isaac Bashevis Singer and Sholem Alechem, who wrote the Fiddler on the Roof-inspired stories, um, and the Tubby the Milkman stories. And so these sort of classic writers who are writing these Jewish, like invented Jewish folktales, basically, um, the predecessors to this tone. And also just, I wanted Thistlefoot to be this like cheeky, playful, unreliable, slightly threatening character that had a bit of that bite that the original Baba Yaga folktales have, where this sort of dangerous unpredictability. To me, though, that's the most natural way to tell a story is with this kind of like teasing, elbowing nudge. So although Thistlefoot the house sticks to the past, to the folktales that animate the world of 100 years ago, Thistlefoot the book, your book, also encompasses American folktales. You know, this is not just an old world story. It's old world stories told in the quote unquote new world. So there's quite a few American legends folded in here. I'm thinking of Isaac Yaga's absurd use of Depression era train hopper slang or how he dresses the part. Um, what elements of, I guess, American legend or, um, you know, American folk tales and even horror stories, whether real or imagined, did you fold in? It was really important to me that this was sort of like an American transient narrative, like an, an American road trip story. Uh, and I think that as a story about sort of immigrants remembering or misremembering the past, what's so important is that Isaac and Bellatine Yaga are Americans. They're fully Americans, um, which is part of that separation between them and that past. And I personally love American folklore and American folk tradition and am an American. So it's obviously, it's like the, it's the folklore that I grew up embedded in and the culture I grew up embedded in. Um, I like that you mentioned Isaac's sort of absurd train hopping thing. So these were actually just based directly on like my friends and community. So like when I was writing Isaac's character, 
I was interviewing my boyfriend at the time, who's a train hopper and a blues player, and he dresses like that. And he's, since he was 19, been hopping trains across America with his guitar. All of the train hopping information about Isaac and Benji's train hopping journeys is like, accurate to how one would hop a train because I'd get on the phone and be like so Matt if you were to be getting on this kind of train car like what exactly would be the safe side of that to climb up and like what would be the terminology of this kind of mechanics and he would like go on this whole talk about it so yeah in certain ways they're kind of these like absurd antiquated fantasy characters but also they're just like who I hang out with (laughs) but I think that's also part of the whole reason I'm drawn to this lore is that for me, a lot of this is living folklore. It's, it's not just embedded in the past. So it's these traditions of American transience, American travel. There's something about the way that this country is so large that it allows for this constant motion. You can be traveling your whole life and never see every part of America. Um, and so, especially for someone like Isaac's character, it it has this cultural restlessness embedded in it, and this um, this tension between the darkness inherent in our country and the origins of our country and the present of our country, and this kind of romanticism of like the rambler. Um, so yeah, there, there was a lot of like rambling folklore. There's also this idea. In basically the magic system in the world of Thistlefoot, it's it's a magical realism novel. It's not high fantasy, but the one kind of magical rule is that the past, history, and trauma has the ability to physically alter the world. Um, it can physically change a building. It can physically alter a landscape. And so one of the things I worked with, and more on like a, a line level... Uh, like brief mentions throughout are the parts of America where pain is so deeply embedded that the landscape has physically changed. You know, the death site of Emmett Till having like permanently been altered and like the railroads that were built by Chinese immigrants who were then executed upon payday were like wriggling like snakes because of how they'd been permanently altered. Um, and so in a way it was taking the history of America, a very real, very painful history, and folklorizing it. Um, you know, turning the volume knob up on that history so that it became literally animated and living in a way that couldn't be sort of forgotten or overlooked. We have links in the show notes to Jenna Rose Nethercott's debut novel, Thistlefoot, as well as the short story we published a couple years ago, A Diviner's Absidarian. You can buy a rare edition of Ivan Bilibin's Vasilisa the Brave in the original Russian for $1,400, or you can pick up a modern translation at the link in the show notes. For more Slavic folklore, check out an earlier episode I did on the Snow Maiden, And thanks to everybody who wrote in guessing where I went on vacation these past two weeks. It was Greece. Your stickers are in the mail. The music in this episode is The Hut on Fowl's Legs from Pictures at an Exhibition by Modeste Mussorgsky, performed by the Oslo Philharmonic with conductor Semyon Bishkov. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.